my phone was, okay. was on my pocket. Am I doing this? Oh. Hi, listeners. Hey. 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 My name is Hal. And this is Matt. And this is A Foreigner at Home, which is a series of audio portraits about the American voters behind Trump. This audio series documents a journey my brother and I took to explore our country in the summer of 2016. We were inspired by the election to listen, and to learn to listen, more thoughtfully and with more curiosity. Each episode will be a portrait of one person we met and came to understand a little bit better both as an individual and as an American. Before we share our first portrait, we'd like to take you back to how this project began. Hal and I are siblings with American passports. And while we sound, act, eat, and drink like Americans, in reality, we are foreigners. To clarify, we were born here, but we were not raised here. From when we were babies, we have lived in places far different than our birthplace. Places like Ghana, Egypt, Saudi Arabia, and the Philippines. Our dad's job with USAID took us out into the world and committed us to being constant foreigners, no matter where we go. We're never from there. On the final night of the RNC, as Trump finished his speech, I recognized the feeling that has always been a part of both Hal's and my life. The feeling of otherness, of being a phantom, both within and outside the world that you currently inhabit. He painted a world full of terror and plight. I found myself confused. I had never encountered such a world, especially within the USA. I found myself asking the question, do people really live with this level of fear? Is it warranted? If yes, why? If not, why does Trump's message resonate? After a day of contemplation, I called my sister to get her take on a plan to find this apocalypse, where the reason why his message is hitting home. I currently live in Austin, Texas, a taco and tech-infused blue island in a sea of red. When Maddie called me, I was scrolling through Facebook, nonchalantly consuming the one-dimensional image of a Trump voter that memes and 10-second video segments portray. I remember one post explicitly titled, Trump voters are just as dumb as you think they are. My response to Maddie came from my work in software design. In good software design, there's a simple rule. You never blame the unexpected use of the software on the user. If someone can't find a button, or if someone navigates to a page in a roundabout way, it's not their fault. It reveals a problem in the design. The election is analogous. If you hold a vote and up to 50% of participants you're calling dumb or ignorant, you're ignoring 50% of the data. Because just like in software design, when you call people dumb, you're missing an opportunity. The opportunity to listen, understand, and gather data points for how to move forward. I left my life in DC to pursue this project. And soon after, my sister joined me. Who were these people? And what were their lives like? We found no clues in the media that we followed, only caricatures. We decided to explore a nation that we were citizens of, but apparently didn't know. Our goal became comprehending unfamiliar values and developing empathy for unfamiliar points of view. While the intention of this project remains the same today, its weight changed when on November 8, 2016, Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. There was distress in democratic communities on this day. Many people were scared, some feared for their lives and their livelihoods. We witnessed this legitimate fear, as well as another emotion, heartbreak. Heartbreak caused by the overwhelming darkness of a previously unknown and now seemingly insurmountable crevice in the American population. 
They're swelled in that gap, grief for a country that was unwell, hopelessness for reconciliation, and the alienating feeling of being a foreigner in your own home. We must come to the logical conclusion that we as a nation have been talking past each other. We have been broadcasting. We haven't been receiving. We must see our environment as it is and realize that the world is loud. We scream into airwaves filled with billions of voices in the hopes that someone will hear us. Within the realization that we haven't been listening to each other is the hope that so many people seek. Through listening is the possibility for self-determination, reconciliation, and therefore the hope of a more unified America. We have the ability to control the mental position in which we listen. We must set our mental knobs and calibrate the world that we want by calibrating ourselves. By moving away from judgment and anger to a place of curiosity, you enable yourself to be an explorer in a land you have never been. Our reconciliation depends on our ability to tune ourselves to the right frequency. To be compassionate and to suffer with is to say that I hear you. Not that your pain is more or less than mine, but that pain sucks. And that while one of us is possibly more versed, neither of us is the sole sufferer. With your act of compassion, your act of listening breeds listening. Through practicing what you preach, while you may not convert, you build a bridge. By showing rather than telling, we teach the world how it should be. Tune in and listen. Welcome home. With that context, we'll get started. Our first portrait is of a man we gave the name of Jay. As you listen to his portrait and the others, note that we won't be fact-checking what our interviewees are saying. We don't spend time doing this because fact-checking isn't necessary for comprehending the reality of a person. We are here to listen to and get to know the people who support Donald Trump, and that means looking for understanding instead of facts. These individuals let us record their point of view and broadcast it to people they have never met. Imagine you were in this vulnerable position and give these folks the non-judgmental curiosity that you would hope to receive. Welcome to A Foreigner at Home. I'm sitting at a bar in the middle of Iowa. I had just spent an entire day going from place to place, trying to get people to talk to me. Eventually I met Jay from Iowa. The first thing you noticed about Jay was that he could break you like Drago from Rocky IV. He was tall yet stocky and a guy who had been working with his hands his entire life. Jay works in construction, and has for some time now. A letterman athlete in four sports. The first three sports he played were track, football, and wrestling. The last was debate. When I asked him the chance of him voting for Trump in November, this was his response. At this point, it's probably 100%. 100%. There's just, I believe that Bubba vote has to be united. That hillbilly vote that's all NRA, watches NASCAR, yeah. protect my rights, you know, yeah. has to be united. Uh-huh. And we all know that Johnson's not going to make the cut, so I sure as hell am not going to vote for Hillary. And I believe that if I'm going to stand here and criticize our country, I better have voted in the election. Right. So that leaves me with Donald Trump. Jay isn't happy about the Republican nominee. When asked whether he feels like he has been failed by the RNC in their choice of their nominee, he quickly said yes. He would prefer to vote for the Libertarian nominee, Johnson, but knows that he's not going to win. 
He later stated he would gladly vote for Johnson if he stood a chance. Voting for Hillary is not an option. I will not vote for Hillary. This view was to be expected given Jay's demographics and political leanings. But then Jay told me something that I really did not see coming. Like my dad, he actually worked for Hillary's campaign against Barack Obama like a long time ago. He was, he was pretty high up in that campaign. This family dynamic will become clearer later in the story. I think that in order to put Jay's views into context, we have to dive into Jay's story a bit. I grew up in a house where anything that you got extra other than food and clothes, you earned it. And from the sweat of your brow. Bailing hay, tasseling corn, you know, getting out there working cattle with the old man. I earned my keep. But at the same time, my wife is a social worker. So she depends on more democratic government, like uh, funding for programs to help her clients and stuff like that. Right. But I, I'm 100%. I believe in work hard, be happy. Work hard, be happy. Note that. It's going to be a theme. His dad is a Democrat. His wife needs money from Democrats for her job, yet he's a Republican. How'd this weird mix come together? In this case, some background information on Jay's family is needed. Jay's mom's side of the family grew up in the Appalachian Hills of Tennessee and Kentucky. She had eight siblings. His maternal grandfather was a moonshiner, and his maternal grandmother raised the children. Jay's mother was adopted by a well-off family in Virginia. However, there were tensions between the family and her. He says that they never really accepted her. Socially, they were at a better status. However, they weren't as close, you know, so she had a lot of issues there. On the other hand, Jay's father's side is a completely different story. While Jay's paternal great-grandfather was a coal miner, his dad's mom went a different route and became a lobbyist in D.C. Because of his mother's job in D.C., his father grew up there. Jay's parents were two free-spirited kids. When they met, they fell in puppy love. Two people from two very different backgrounds. His dad from the metropolitan D.C. area and his mom from the hills of Kentucky. They got together, totally different backgrounds, fell, fell in puppy love, and then I was a product of that. So while she was pregnant with me, my grandmother from my dad's side had a stroke, a really bad stroke. And the best place in the nation at the time for dealing with that type of a stroke was at the University of Iowa in Iowa City. And so they moved here. My mom ended up like leaving her past. You know, she had a whole bunch of trauma, being separated from her other eight siblings and then going into this adopted family, which was a really bad lifestyle because she was never accepted, left that family. And, uh, moved with my father while she was pregnant with me uh, to Iowa. So I was first generation Iowan right here. The trauma that Jay's mom left behind, however, never really left her. It followed her and greatly shaped her personality. Like, she never really found acceptance. Uh, in fact, she still has identity issues to this day. Quite a few. This reminds me of like a, a 17-year-old kid. 17-year-old kid. Yeah. Trying to figure out which way they're gonna go in this fork in the road. She'll call me, and like we we only talk like maybe once every six months to a year, just depending whether or not she's in prison or not. Like she didn't know I had a daughter until after like a year and then I had a daughter. She'll call me and be like, "Well, this is what I'm doing. I'm gonna get married to this great guy. He's gonna save everything." And then, like. I'll find out six months to a year later that like this guy beat the hell out of her, it didn't really work out for her, and now she's on to this other adventure. 
It's important to note that when Jay's mom was in jail, he would go into foster care and go back with his mom when she got out. When he was 16, he went into an independent living program. He then explained how his mother's mentality influenced his outlook on life. Yeah, I think that's kind of what shaped me to, to never want to feel victimized. Always kind of want to like make your own path, you know, kind of be the Napoleon of the family. You know, I want to be responsible for my destiny. Jay feels that his mother's lack of control in her life makes him want to be in control of his. On the other hand, Jay's father doesn't seem to suffer from the same type of identity issues that his mother does. At first, he seems like the type of person who is very much in control of his life. My dad's office. He used to own his own business. He actually went to college at the University of Iowa when they moved down here. He studied... Uh, Russian history and theory at the University of Iowa. He speaks fluent Russian. <laughs> My dad is so damn smart. He could, I, I, I shit you not, he could probably have a government job as an analyst. He could sit there and talk with the best of them about any countries, like, from from the ancient days to, to modern civilization, like, the, the struggles they went through to get to where they're at today, what they're still experiencing their cash crops, anything, like, he, he's, he's a genius when it comes to, like, just economically knowing, like, what a country has to offer and, and how it's gone to where, where they are today and, and what played a role in that. Turns out the differences between the two couldn't be reconciled, and they split up soon after Jay was born, and the aftermath was not pretty. Him and my mom went through, like, a really, really bad custody battle with me in the state of Iowa, which he completely hates. He, he cannot stand them. Really screwed him over. He ended up losing his business, all in the efforts of trying to track me down from county to county because my mom moved frequently to avoid persecution for her wrongdoings. My mom developed quite a bit of chemical dependency and alcohol issues and really didn't put me in a lot of good situations, or my sisters for that matter. And he caught on to that, like he was trying to find me so much and, and claim his rights as my father. And the state of Iowa just continued to let these things happen to me and my sisters. I think it largely shaped who he is today because he's very capable and able. He's living on disability. Really, I think he's just putting up a middle finger to the state of Iowa. That's kind of what he's doing. Like, very smart guy. Very, very smart. Probably the smartest guy I've ever talked to or ever, ever met. Jay's dad eventually decided that the only course of action that he had was revenge against those who took his children away from him. The strategy of bleeding the system for all it's worth, however, is not one that Jay agrees with. It's like, okay, so yeah, he got kicked in the face. DHS did me wrong. Like, he tried to convince me for years, like, from the time I was 15 until I was, like, 23 to, like, file a lawsuit against the state of Iowa because they let this habitual offender still, like, care for me and do me harm. Sort of speak. I was never really abused. Like, yeah. put me in a lot of questioning circumstances, right? And continued to let me go back in the care of somebody that wasn't mentally stable and that was drug addicted. Like, his focus was just, like, constantly wanting to get back in the state of Iowa. And yet, he still resides here. <laughs> uh -huh. he, he still resides here, and he's living off of him at this point. The organization he's, he's actually dependent on. But at that same time, like, I still don't understand. Like, bust your ass, work hard, be happy, be in control. Work hard, be happy. Jay says this phrase a whole lot, but what does it mean? 
At first, it seems like a call for people to get off their asses and do their part in society. That is partly true. But when Jay starts talking about his dad, he says something that gives a whole lot of insight into how deep this phrase is. Work hard, be happy, be in control. Being in control. If you don't feel like you have any say, what's the point in trying? I remember a particular study that I learned about in school. Rats were put in a cage that was attached to a battery. Whenever the rat did a certain action, it was shocked. Soon, the rat took control of the situation and found a way to stop the pain by not doing that particular action. When the cage was shocked randomly, without a pattern, unattached from any actions that the rat took, eventually the rat sat down on the floor of the cage and just took the shocks. Without a sense of control, the rat started moving very little, if at all. Helplessness and control are two sides of the same coin. You either have one or the other. Jay is saying that people call their side and one side is getting easier and easier to call. Jay sees this harmful mentality not only affecting his father, but he extends it out to a whole new generation of Americans. He thinks that the work hard, be happy mentality is dying because of the lack of shame surrounding taking handouts. It was on like free lunch or something at school. You almost felt ashamed. Like those kids would feel ashamed. Yeah. And, and I don't think, you know, that's gone now. Like people have learned to manipulate the system to where they could actually eat steak and lobster every day of their life, have their utilities paid for them, have Section 8 housing provided for them. And, and not have to work hardly at all. You know, have a phone, have, you know, just have, like, be entitled to the same things as people that have to bust their, their rears every day to, to barely make it. Jay believes this up-and-coming mentality is pulling at the fabric of our society. The idea of work hard, be happy is not just a societal necessity, but is also a personal creed. It states in just a few lines some wisdom on an important ingredient needed for the creation of personal and societal happiness. It's insane. It's, it's just different values, you know? Generations are, are just progressively, like, adapting to the way they were raised. My daughter, she's two and a half years old, and, like, she's got chores. She's got stuff she has to do to, like, to get incentives. And I, I think that's just... Uh, everyone gets a medal nowadays. I don't agree with that at all. Like... I understand what they're trying to do. They're trying to eliminate that whole superiority thing in schools. But at the same time, what are these kids that, that when they get out in the real world and, and they face adversity and life's obstacles and they fail, what are they going to do? They don't know how to handle failure. Work hard, be happy relates to people's reactions to failure. If you don't know how to regain your control and overcome failure, go through the tough stuff and continue to keep working hard, then how are you going to succeed? Jay suggests that you create the control that you are missing. However, temptation to take the easy path is everywhere. Jay is now surrounded by proof of a growing welfare state, and inhabits everything that he does, and he sees no one taking shame in the assistance that they receive. That little bit of shame that used to go with people that had to take assistance and were on welfare, I think benefited our country because they would try not to have to go back to the soup line, so to speak. There is so much more uh, like government-assisted uh, living going up around here, and, and in Iowa in general. Despite Jay's disdain for the expansion of government assistance, it is what Jay relies on for a large part of his income ever since he became an independent contractor a few months ago. Actually, I've bid more federal work lately than I have like residential stuff. Like assisted living places, like, but we're slowing down right now, so I've, 
just trying not to deplete my savings at this point. I'm just trying to keep it replenished and, and you know, stay afloat. A lot of Jay's work comes from building public housing. Government assistance surrounds Jay's life. The federal government's welfare system is infused in everything that Jay sees, but he refuses to take part. Right? If you don't have work, what do you do? You either, you know, you could go on assistance from the government, or you could get out there and bust your butt and try to make an ends meet, right? Yeah. I, I don't like to take handouts. The work hard, be happy mentality in action. However, the government seems to be subsidizing most of Jay's life and community, even if Jay doesn't take part. Jay's disdain for government programs is in part due to their effect and scope, but also his personal experience with how they failed him, most notably when it comes to the Department of Human Services' inability to recognize his mother's instability. Yeah, she's been in and out of prison since I was in kindergarten. Well, I think it started out with alcohol and marijuana, but it grew to definitely methamphetamines, and then I think just about anything she could get away with. Anything? Yeah. That's how she kind of masked a lot of the bad things that happened to her life. The relationship that Jay's mom had with drugs shows how she deals with reality and her past. And that's the other thing, is even with my own mother, like I don't know what's real or what's not based off of what she tells me because it, everything's one big story with her. What did she actually experience? The story that I hear from her was, uh, yeah, she was adopted in this really well-to-do family, which I believe is true. And my father, he confirms that it was true. Things he doesn't know, like on a personal level that she tells me, is that like she was abused like, physically and sexually by her adopted father. It makes sense to me. Seeing what I've seen, you know, the last 31 years, it makes sense, like, why she is the way she is. She reminds me quite a bit of somebody that's, you know, PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder, you know. Just goes from bad situation to bad situation. She doesn't really take a step back, look at her life, and from the point of view of how am I going to make myself the best person that I can, and what steps do I need to take to get them. She, she does not do that. She jumps from one great idea to the next. Just kind of a sporadic person goes with the flow, even if it's the worst thing she could possibly do. Jay said earlier that his mother's behavior molded him to make his own way, like Napoleon. Once again, his parents' lack of control over their lives frustrates him. They do not adhere to the creed, work hard, be happy. Jay then tells me about a time when his mother seemed to have found some peace. It seemed like she straightened up when she got with my stepdad for about 10 to about 10 years. He was a positive in her life. Okay. Until he got sick and he ended up dying of cancer. When she found out he was getting sick, instead of being there for her husband, she went out and did some fucked up shit. She was in prison when he died. Um, she got sent before he died and she was in prison when he died. That was really rough on her. It was rough on all of us. I mean, he was practically like my dad. He spiraled out of control. Just hasn't looked back since. And that happened like about five years ago. So she's been in and out of prison since then. Really, really close with my, my stepbrother and sisters. And I defended my mother to a certain degree. I tried to represent her while she was in prison to the rest of the family, and it ended up tearing us all apart over his estate. They wanted her to have nothing, which I don't believe she deserved anything either. But at the same time, I felt obligated to, to stand up for her and her 
business. And she proved them right when she got out. She had control of this estate. She spent like <laughs> about $300,000 on a whole bunch of shit before his estate was even settled and didn't leave any remnants of their father's memory. And so I feel really horrible for that. Jay and his mom don't really communicate all that often anymore. He sees her presence as damaging and feels like she can't be trusted. She wants to have a relationship with my child, and I refuse to let her around my daughter because she's not stable. So, um, is your mom in, in jail now? Actually, it's a funny story, but yeah, uh, she called me and informed me that she was getting married to the love of her life. You know, and it's like, oh, okay. And then the next day, because I signed up for this thing, it's an app for the Iowa Department of Corrections that lets me know if an inmate status changes, okay, because she's on parole and all this, and I get a text message the next day saying that she is in custody again. And so she's in a county jail right now, I've been told. Did she call you? No. She, she hasn't called you yet? No, she won't, because I have a really bad habit of parenting my mother. Nobody that is that sick wants to hear how horrible they are or how bad of choices they're making. She doesn't call, but she knows that I know. I mean, because I told her a couple times ago that I'll know if she gets arrested. Jay's parents exemplified the type of mentality that he finds to be so destructive. He also has seen the failures of a government program firsthand. Here's how Jay feels about the Department of Human Services and the way that they handled his case. I still think that the impression on the courts and, and social workers is that a child belongs with their mother. Yeah. You know, which I can understand because a typical, like, poster child mother is going to be nurturing, loving, kind. Mm -hmm. But, you know, this can't continue to happen where they just turn a blind eye and hope everything's going to get better. But at the same time, you know, the argument can be made, well, do they have the resources? What's the caseload of these, each individual worker? You know, should the government right. be bigger? You know, it could go either way on that. Right. But I just think a better system could be put in place. If you have a history and it adds up to where, yeah, you know what, chances are you are a lunatic, maybe some further investigations warranted. Jay brings up that you could give more money to programs like DHS, but doesn't think that it's going to fix its issues. Not unless the program changes. When asked if a social program had ever worked for him, this was his response. No. Never has? I, I can't think of one that's worked out for him, no. No. I, I really can't. Okay. Well, I, no, I can't say that, I guess. I mean, I, I'm sure that... I had friends that were on welfare and stuff like that, or that had free lunch and stuff. It's like, so what's the alternative? You know, do they not eat, or do they, you know, do they not have a place to live? So it probably works out, you know. But we were never eligible for welfare or any of that, even though we probably wouldn't qualify, just because of my mom's choices and stuff like that. It's part of the reason why my dad could have probably proved, or I could have proved, that they intentionally put me in harm's way because my mom, a habitual offender of drugs and narcotics and, and alcohol, didn't qualify for assistance. You know? Uh, so yeah, they kept letting me go back to live with her, but how was she providing for me? You know what I mean? Right. 
Right. Thankfully, I had a lot of good friends and stuff that I grew up with, and their parents kind of knew what was going on even in my ignorance. You know, I didn't learn about most of this until I was like 16 or 17, so when I could kind of make my own opinion. Right. Kind of see what was going on. So. Even though he retracted his original negative response, he still didn't provide an example of a social program working out for him. He brought up his friends, who did benefit. His mother was the cause of him not receiving the benefit that he was entitled to. These experiences dictate his views on how the government should be run. I don't agree with expanding the government, but I think our government needs to pay closer attention to detail. Jay slipped through the cracks his entire life. Government oversight estranged him from his father because DHS didn't connect the dots that his mother wasn't fit to take care of him. What he's saying is that we need to fix the problems that we currently have, not create more programs and spread our attention and money so thinly. The government doesn't need to grow. It needs to start working, fix things rather than make things. However, he not only distrusts the government because of failures locally, but also nationally and internationally. Like the housing market crash and like that, that should have never happened. You know what I mean? Yeah. He has the same sort of response when 9-11 is mentioned. While he says he still needs to do more research, this is his conclusion as of now. There was opportunities to prevent something on that scale. Okay, that wasn't taken advantage of. Do you blame George Bush for that, or do you blame Dick Cheney? He feels that the government had the opportunity to avoid the disaster, and then goes on to say that there are probably many reasons for the invasion of Iraq, but basically it was for the acquisition of oil, but definitely not to find the people who attacked the towers. Uh, but, but I think that's what it boils down to, is, is oil. So, yeah. so why should you believe anyone, on any side, about what they say about anything? It's not like the Democrats performed any better. Many Democrats voted for the war in Iraq. To give more context, here's what Jay said when I asked him to visualize Trump at one of his rallies and explain how he felt. Like it's another reality show. Is, you know, I, I mean, I really do get that, that impression. Yeah. And, and that's like my first impression. Of it. It's just another <laughs> publicity stunt, almost. Okay. You know? Yeah. So do you, do you think it's real? Do I think it's real that he's running for president? Is that, I mean... Well, uh, do you think that what his he values, says, what he says, like, yeah. has any weight at all? Yeah. And I hope so. You that, hope so? That, 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 I mean, that's the best way I can answer my Jay says he hopes so, like he's rolling the dice. In the next clip, Jay explains what he is hoping to gain from a Trump presidency. Okay. I, I, I hope that he's able to steer this country back into the direction it needs to be. Pundits of the Republican Party say this all the time. So where does the country need to go? And where is it right now? So I asked Jay what he thinks the current state of the USA is. Uncertainty. Just uncertainty. Uncertainty? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, when I was a kid, like, the only thing I had to worry about was making sure that I got home before the streetlights were You know what I mean? Jay brings up his daughter. 
and her future. A lot of uncertainty in, in their future. Like, what, what is she going to be able to do in her future? Is she going to have a fair chance and an opportunity at, at living, you know, the American dream? I don't, I don't know. You just don't. It's a lot of uncertainty and just overall just hoping that the right change can come to America. I do not believe that it's with a Democratic president. I really don't. When Jay says he doesn't think that the things are going to get better with a Democratic president, what exactly does he mean? The answer partially lies when Jay starts talking about Obama. The government is saying that you have to do this, saying that you have to have health care, okay. um, whether it be government funded, the, the Obamacare, or the, the other thing is, look at our debt. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's just spiraling out of control. Yeah. Like, How scared are you of that? On a scale of one to ten, what probably like an eight. An eight. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want to say that we're ever going to have to go back to the dark ages where it's by candlelight or anything like that. But man, money's going to run out sometime. Mm -hmm. I mean, our allies aren't going to be able to bail us out all the time. Mm -hmm. you know? What if, could we afford another war? Mm -hmm. As a country, could we afford another war? That's a good point. I don't know. Yeah. You know, are we going to go to war if Trump's elected? <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe he's got a plan there. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's just scary. It, Jay expresses extreme concern over the debt. He sees himself as being fiscally responsible and that by ramping up social programs, the government is headed towards fiscal disaster. Her track record is what is making me vote for Donald Trump. And the fact that, that he, he's a businessman. He's got a business mind. The concept of a business mindset exactly aligns with what Jay wants his government to be like spend as little money as possible, and fix the problems that you have. Jay has no illusions about Trump's character and motivations. When I asked him if he trusted Trump, this was his response. Do you trust him? What are you guys doing? Doing good. Good. Just down a bit. That's tough. My, my honest opinion is he's a businessman. So he's doing, and he says he's not going to take, you know, a salary, which I don't believe he needs anyway. But obviously, the reason, part of the reason why he doesn't need salaries, like I wonder what, what I'm wondering in my head is, if elected, what is he, how is he going to benefit? You know, he's he's got an angle here, right? So his companies are going to benefit, or he, he's going to put in. Put something into law to, to help out that, that richer class. Do you think that's okay? <laughs> I, I don't know. No. I don't know. Yeah, I'm kind of back to the corner here a little bit. Okay. I, I don't know. I, I, I just I think that the middle class needs to needs to reap some of the benefits. I mean. Everybody in here goes to work every day. Right. You know, they bust their ass. Right. Do I think that the, the rich need to keep getting richer? You know, if they earned it, yeah. I'm not, so to answer your question, no, I'm not okay with, with him furthering, with him 
only looking out for his sole interest as a, a elected president. Uh-huh. No, I'm not okay. Okay. Who would be? This is curious. Jay doesn't trust Trump, but he's going to vote for him. Why? After all, Jay is voting for him for one reason in particular. He's a businessman. He's got a business mind. Trump's got all this money, so he must be doing something right. He must be running a tight ship and addressing the issues as they pop up. Jay sees Clinton as a failure. How is she going to fix the problems that we face when she doesn't produce results? Not only that, but she's going to expand the government, pay for people's college, expand Obamacare, basically more government assistance. Jay is really, really afraid of the debt. On a fear scale of 10, he gave it an 8. Here's this person who's saying, give more free stuff to people and don't worry about the bill. If the debt scares you that much, regardless of how badly your candidate acts and how disgraceful their candor, it doesn't matter. The Democratic president would keep spending money and overlook the dysfunction of the current government in order to expand it. He understands that his party made most of the decisions that caused catastrophic events like the Iraq war and the housing crash. He gets it. He blames them. But that doesn't change the fact that he believes in Republican ideas. Jay may not trust Trump, but he feels like he has to. Government can't stay the same way it is. There needs to be a change. Jay sees a government about to explode. We are in a crazy amount of debt. We keep spending money on programs that don't work and creating more programs that don't work. Regulation is killing small business. And worst of all, we're losing the mentality that is the driving force of Jay's America. More and more people are going into welfare after losing jobs, failing at business, and without the work hard, be happy creed, they never come back. And Democrats are proposing more welfare? Jay thinks we're at a breaking point. So all you can do is hope that Trump means what he says. Even if he has to joke about something like this. Are we going to go to war if Trump's elected? (laughs) Maybe, Maybe he's got a plan there. Maybe he's got a plan. To Jay, Trump represents hope. Maybe he can do what I hope he can do. Regardless of what he says, Jay feels like he's backed into a corner. The story does end happily for Jay. While he still has to bust his ass to get by, he has the life he deserves. He loves his wife, has a daughter. It even looks like Jay finally got the family that he never had growing up after connecting with his in-laws. They're just good people, really good people. We share the same interests, we hunt, we fish, we drink beer together, (laughs) we just hang out, have families, I play cards, you know, just stuff to pass time. I'm glad Jay finally got what he wanted in the end. He's a good guy. While we don't necessarily see eye to eye, there are many things that I admire about him. He cares about his family, and stands up for what he thinks will make their lives better. We had fun despite the fact that we were talking about politics most of the time. Through his politics, we discovered pain and loss, hope, and redemption. He showed me an undercurrent of thought that shapes him and his community, something that he holds very dear. A creed, a conviction, honor, something I don't see that often. As our conversation came to a close and I had to catch my train, Jay said something that encompasses what we're trying to do here. So once again, here's Jay. You know, when you sit here, you think about it, you talk about it, and you think about the origin of our conversation, it's political. And, 
you know, people's lives are greatly affected by by the government's involvement or, or non-existence in, in situations and families and lives. Like, could my mom have gotten help? You know that she deserved at a young age, and maybe you know what? Now that I think about it. You know, I, I probably did get the help that I deserved. Otherwise, I could have probably been a product of the same environment that my mom was, you know? Right. I, I, I at least was exposed to good enough role models to, to give me an objective point of view on life as opposed to a one-sided, depressed look out of my life. So. Yeah. Thanks to Blue Dot Sessions for the music. Thanks to Jay, our interviewee, and thanks for listening. Tune in and listen next time to get to know Bert from Colorado. We are a foreigner at home. You know, just stuff to pass time. She grew up in that type of humble environment because they went through their own struggles, but they didn't give up. Right. They worked hard. Blue collar. You know, they didn't take handouts. So I walked outside, I said, where are you guys going? And they ended up uh, saying they were going down the street to the next park. And I knew that they were having like a 50th class reunion that night there. So they had like a polka band. And not going to be fun for a couple of young broads. But I said, hey, if you guys don't have any fun down there, why don't you come back and I'll buy you a drink. Well, they came back like within 10 minutes. So I made true on my bet or my, my promise and I bought him a drink and then uh, I exchanged numbers with her at the end of the evening and I called her a few days later and we met and went ice skating I missed the Super Bowl took her out to a nice dinner and then about two or three months later I moved down here and got a job down here because like, we didn't want to be separated anymore so been together ever since yeah we moved really really fast which does not work out with our catholic upbringing but it sure did so romantic not really <laughs> if you hear her tell the story some big bearded dude just chased her and i haven't always been this big but i back then i was like fresh out of college like not a kind of football